The actions of the Trump presidency revealed the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. I'm Ezra Klein. This is Impeachment Explained. This was the week that the reality of impeachment became undeniable, that it no longer became plausible for Republicans or Democrats to believe that President Trump did not do what he has alleged and, frankly, what he has admitted to doing. This was the week that Bill Taylor, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and then the charge of affairs for Ukraine under Donald Trump, testified his statement leaked. We'll put a link to that in show notes. If you have not read it, it is important reading is one of the central documents in this entire thing. It is quite well written. He lays out everything he saw, everything that happened. And what he shows is that the story is largely what we thought it was, but worse. Donald Trump was involved. There was a separate channel of policymaking being run by Rudy Giuliani competing with the normal channels of policymaking. And now the entire political system is rearranging itself around the recognition there is no escape from impeachment. Democrats cannot now divert themselves. It is not going to happen that something comes out that suggests, oh, there was nothing here after all. There was no quid pro quo. Donald Trump didn't know what was going on or what he was doing. Impeachment has become an inevitability for Democrats to pursue, but also for Republicans. Uh, Republicans no longer have the option of suggesting it didn't happen. And so we are watching Republicans organize themselves around the knowledge they're going to somehow have to walk the line between recognizing that Donald Trump did what he is accused of doing, but also somehow defending him and defending themselves. And we are seeing the beginning of the arguments they're going to use to do that. In our A block today, as we talk about the news that matter this week, we're going to talk about those two things. And in the B block, the thing that Taylor's testimony was a reminder of is that this is a story about Ukraine, not about Ukraine as a bit player in American politics, Ukraine as a secondary story that is interesting in our great political drama. But Ukraine as a country that is under attack, has been under attack, is under attack from Russia. Ukraine is a country where thousands of people have died because of this Russian attack. Ukraine as a country where Vladimir Putin is trying to take it over and has taken part of it. And Ukraine is a country that is geopolitically important to America. And I'm going to talk with Evelyn Farkas, who was the top Pentagon official on Ukraine when Russia invaded Crimea and helped construct the Obama administration's response. And after you hear from her, I think this whole story is going to look quite different to you because it's easy to believe that we left Vladimir Putin and Russia behind in the Mueller affair. But in fact, the entire context this is playing out in is Vladimir Putin's context. The reason Ukraine was under pressure, the reason they needed American military aid, the reason Donald Trump had leverage not only on them, but on his own State Department and Pentagon and foreign affairs team, it all has to do with this context, this pressure Vladimir Putin was applying that created a chain reaction in geopolitics that is leading us all the way down to impeachment. So this was a big week. This was the week when we saw the reality of the story for what it is. We're going to start with Alex Ward of Vox, who covered all of it. Alex Ward of Vox, big week. The biggest. So I, I want to start with the Bill Taylor testimony, which I think was a political bomb. Let, let's start with uh, how Rebecca Kaplan reported on it for CBS News. 
Damning was one word used by a source in the room. Uh, devastating to the president was what California Democrat Ted Lieu told me. Another, uh, Andy Levin of Michigan, said that this is one of the most disturbing things he has heard in his admittedly short time in Congress. He's only been here since January, but it really did seem to cause quite a stir. And what lawmakers have told us is that the testimony today really filled in a lot of gaps in the story that other witnesses may not have known. Uh, Alex, why was Taylor's testimony such a big deal? Well, first, I should say that me and other colleagues here at Vox heard the same things from lawmakers. I mean, this was uh, seen as a massive bombshell from uh, by folks on the Hill and and from people who who read it. And the reason it was big is it was about as close or as good as an account of a quid pro quo that we've all been really looking for as we've seen. And on top of that, it clearly implicates the president in this entire Ukraine thing. So what you have is is already sort of the two things we've been looking for, that the president was involved and that there was this uh, trade of Ukraine military aid for investigations into the Bidens and the Democrats. When you say the president was involved, what in Taylor's testimony showed you that? So I would recommend for those who have not read it, uh, one to do so, but I will mention what happened on July 18th. So Taylor describes a video conference he had with other government officials of the National Security Council and other people. And what he says is that during this meeting, someone off camera mentioned that, oh, this aid has been held up. And he goes, wait a minute, I haven't heard about it. Like, what happened here? And what he is told is, and this is his account now, I'll read it. He goes, all that the OMB staff person said, and OMB is Office of Management and Budget, all that the OMB staff person said was that the directive had come from the president to the chief of staff to OMB. So it's our first real accounting here that this aid that we knew was held up, but no real clear indication why, we have Taylor saying, oh, that the president asked for it. The other thing that struck me as very important in here is Taylor describing these two channels in which U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine were operating and the way they got played off of each other, the normal channel of State Department and Ukraine officials and, and so on, who were trying to execute against our traditional foreign policy towards Ukraine, which in this context was giving them military aid to, to prevent further Russian aggression and territorial expansion. And then this other unofficial channel that ended up holding the power run by Rudy Giuliani and Sondland and others. And that Trump ends up basically saying to the normal channel that if you want our Ukraine policy to go forward, then you have to do what the unofficial channel, the Giuliani channel, tells you to do, which is get Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and, and, and a couple other things. That struck me as like the biggest way that this really gave insight into the day-to-day -day of how Trump was turning the bureaucracy into his instrument. Absolutely. I mean, if you we reading this testimony and listening to others and even news reports, you can see that there was confusion about, you know, where where does all this Ukraine stuff stand? We knew there was an aid held up. We didn't know exactly why. And what Taylor really does is pull all these pieces together and say what really mattered was this irregular foreign policy headed by the Rudy Giuliani's of the world, the Gordon Sondland's of the world, who's the U.S. ambassador to the EU by Kurt Volker, who used to be the special envoy towards Ukraine, and that. They had to really lead on this Ukraine stuff, and it was really all about pressuring Ukraine to openly commit to those two investigations, that that was really what was driving U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine, not the usual channel of, oh, hey, Kiev, deal with some corruption stuff, and then we will give you the money. That's the usual way that goes to the State Department and elsewhere. It was really the Giuliani irregular section that was leading things, and Taylor makes that very clear. 
So uh, now that Taylor's testimony and others have come out, uh, we've moved in the defenses from maybe nothing happened. Maybe there was no quid pro quo. Maybe everything was on the up and up. Maybe the conversation was perfect to, okay, that's clearly not the case. So I want to take a moment because I think you see here the various Republican defenses and counterarguments emerging given what they're actually going to have to deal with uh, in, in terms of the story they're trying to defend against. Let's start with what Matthew Whitaker said on Fox News. Matthew Whitaker, of course, being uh, Trump's former acting attorney general. Abuse of power is not a crime. Let's fundamentally boil it down to, you know, the, the Constitution is very clear that this has to be some pretty egregious behavior. And they cannot tell the American people what this case is even about right now because they have to do it in secret. Abuse of power is not a crime is both not necessarily true, not necessarily relevant, but also not necessarily the ground that you want to really be making your argument on. Yeah, if you're saying doing a bad thing is not uh, (laughs) necessarily what's going to get my president out, then you're already in bad grounds. I mean, the admission already is the president has done something wrong. Now they're moving to, well, that's not impeachable. And what I also find is that the flouting of the norm here, I mean, let's go back to what Bill Taylor told us real quick. I mean, what he told us was that the president held up aid for investigations into a political rival, right? I mean, that is a massive abuse of power and you have to really overlook the fact that this is flouting the way governance works, that makes our elections you know, free and that makes them legitimate. If you are using U.S. foreign policy to attack a rival, then you're not really living up to the to the code that you are supposed to be living up to as the president. Yeah, as a general point, uh, I would urge people to listen to the first episode, last week's episode of the podcast about high crimes and misdemeanors, because abuse of power may or may not be a crime, depending on what the abuse of power is. But abuse of power is canonically a high crime and misdemeanor. High crimes and misdemeanors are actually a way of describing abuses of power. And so if that is the ground you retreat to, um, you are retreating to it based on a misinterpretation of the Constitution that is going to collapse under your feet. But that's not the only answer we've been hearing this week. Um, I think that in some ways, bigger thing you've been seeing among congressional Republicans is a massing around the idea that whatever the substance of the story, the real problem is the way Democrats are running the impeachment process. Lindsey Graham, uh, for instance, created a resolution in the Senate that Republicans signed on to condemning the Democratic impeachment process. And it's worth listening to him for a minute. If you believe you have a case against the president, vote to open up an inquiry, allow Republicans to have a say, make sure the president is allowed to participate in a meaningful manner like we did in the past. That's the way to do it. I'm not here to tell you that Donald Trump's done nothing wrong. I'm not here to tell you uh, anything other than that the way they're going about it is really dangerous for the country. So you also had in the House a bunch of of, of House Republicans um, led by Representative Gates massing outside the, the classified reading room. What do you make of this argument? Are, are the Democrats going about this in a, in a heavy handed or um, historically inappropriate way? In one hand, I kind of get the argument because you have had votes to open impeachment inquiries in, in previous cases. And so I, I get why they are harping on that point. But it's not like this thing doesn't exist, right? I mean, Nancy Pelosi went on camera. I mean, the podcast opens with this, right? Nancy Pelosi goes on camera, says that we are going to open an impeachment inquiry. We're going to look into the president's behavior. And there are three House committees doing this, uh, bringing in witnesses, getting testimony, gaining information with Republicans. You know, Democrats are leading it, but Republicans are there. And so, look, I mean, if your entire basis is you need to vote first— 
well, okay, that is a procedural issue, but it doesn't really talk about the merits of the case. So I, I want to be very clear on something because I think this has been confusing in the coverage. When Graham or others say this is closed, they don't mean it is closed to Republicans. They mean it is closed to people who are not on the three relevant committees. The three relevant committees are allowing the Republicans into these rooms, into these hearings, into the testimony. It's just that it is not the case that the entirety of the House of Representatives can at this juncture fully participate. No, that's exactly right. And there are over 40 Republicans that are getting the information and are, are live listening to you know the witnesses. One of the reasons I think they're pushing for the vote is twofold. One, I think they know that Democrats might not have the votes. It might, that might have changed now with Bill Taylor's testimony and other information coming out. But there are clearly people in Pelosi's caucus that are worried about taking a vote. And then the other one is historically there are reasons for why if the House inquiry is opened or if an impeachment inquiry is open, then Republicans can start subpoenaing their own folks and, and folks that they want to see in front. And so they would gain some power. So a lot of this is just to you know throw make it seem like this entire thing is illegitimate. Another thing is to back Democrats into a corner, and then another is, you know, to maybe gain some more power for themselves. But at the end of the day, it's this thing exists. They, they're not attacking the merits of it. They're just attacking a procedure. Alex Ward, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We ended that conversation on Republicans. And as you listen to this next conversation, I want you to remember that Republicans have traditionally been the political party in America most worried about Russian aggression, intervention, and expansionary impulse. We are looking at a story here that we tend to give two nouns to, America and Ukraine. And Ukraine is an interesting bit player in a grand American political drama. But this is fundamentally a context constructed by Vladimir Putin in Russia. Um, the reason that we are involved with Ukraine in this way is because of what Vladimir Putin has been doing in Ukraine. And the reason that Donald Trump was able to act in this way is that he has a distinct view on Vladimir Putin. It's very unusual for his party or, frankly, for anyone in the national security establishment in America. And so there's something weirder about the story. The fact that we did not actually leave Vladimir Putin behind in Mueller, the fact that he is still here much more fully than I think the reporting has quite reflected, is a chilling, strange piece of it. I'm joined next by Evelyn Farkas, who was a top Pentagon official on Russia and Ukraine during the period in which Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, so the period that kicked off a lot of the political events that we are now living through and is now at uh, the Center for New American Security, the German Marshall Fund, top expert on these issues. She's really very knowledgeable. And I think this is going to be this is the kind of conversation that quite powerfully reframes a story that it feels like we already knew. My conversation with Evelyn Farkas is next. Evelyn Farkas, welcome to Impeachment Explained. Thank you so much, Ezra. This is really fun to be back again. So let's begin with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What, what is the context in which that happened? Well, you could go a little bit back and say in 2008, Russia invaded Georgia already. So we already knew that they had a little problem recognizing and respecting borders. But in the case of Ukraine, when they invaded and seized Crimea and said it was going to be theirs, that was kind of a whole new thing. That was the first time since World War II that a country had done that, basically used military force to change the borders. I mean, it was like Hitler annexing, you know, Austria or the Sudetenland. So basically now we had a situation where 
the Russians had declared war on their neighbor, seized their territory. The international community, you know, all the way to the UN, let's not forget, condemned it. And to this day, they do not recognize what Russia did. At the same time, Russia decided that wasn't enough. They actually wanted to destabilize Ukraine more and maybe take all of eastern Ukraine. They started fomenting uprisings using proxies. And some of it stuck. Some of it didn't work. Um, the local officials stepped in and put and squashed these efforts. But some of them worked. And so we have an ongoing war right now in Ukraine. It's been going on for five years and 13,000 people have died so far. I think that part would be surprising to people. To the extent there's a narrative that has been propagated in America about Russia's invasion of Crimea, it's that it was this strange, remarkable, almost nonviolent invasion. Like one day they just showed up there and they had it. But that's not quite been true and certainly has not been the, the, the story since then. Yeah, I mean, the backdrop, you know, you, some of the listeners might say, well, why did they do this? And it basically has to do with wanting to control Ukraine. So when their bad guy, you know, when they're sorry, when they're crony, so we consider him a bad guy. But when Yanukovych, the guy who was the Russian crony, essentially fled Ukraine for a whole host of reasons we can get into if you want, um, the Russians got alarmed and realized, oh, my God, our guy that helps us, like, keep influence over Ukraine just left. You know, he just got scared and left. And so we now need to do something about that, meaning we need to make sure we have some control over Ukraine now and in the future. And from a military perspective, they did want to have Crimea. It is, it is a strategic area where there are a lot of ports and bases. So there was in the Kremlin, I guess, a fear that they might, if they lose influence over Ukraine, they might get booted out of, meaning their military might get booted out of Crimea. So that was initially why he went in to take it. But Everything he did from that moment forward, meaning Putin, was aimed at trying to reestablish political control over Ukraine. And that's still the game he's playing right now. He doesn't want Ukraine to be a democracy. That's why Bill Taylor's testimony was very clear that this is a fight between Democrats and autocrats. We're supposed to be the Democrats and the Kremlin folks are the autocrats. So I, I want to pause on something you just said about Crimea. To the extent that Americans think about Ukraine, I don't think they think about it very much. But Russia clearly considers it geopolitically central. Um, Bill Taylor and his testimony and some of the other uh, diplomats we've been hearing from make the argument that it is very important to America's geopolitical objectives, too. Like, why, why is Ukraine important to all these world powers. Well, first of all, for Russia, I'll just say you're right. Historically, they've always felt that Ukraine was the little brother. It was sort of um, attached to Russia. It's also very important from the perspective of maintaining the kleptocracy, the whole economy in Russia basically thrives off of this corruption. And a lot of it a lot evolves around the energy industry. Ukraine is a big part of that because pipelines going through Ukraine, providing natural gas to the rest of Europe. So part of it has to do with Russia wanting to maintain that kleptocracy, kleptocratic control over Ukraine and a little bit of the history, right? But on the Western side and on the side of the Ukrainian people now over time, increasingly, we support the right of the Ukrainian people to determine their association. Do they want to be closer to Russia or do they want to be closer to the West? And in 2014, the, the president of Ukraine was wavering. He was kind of playing a little game between us and Russia, taking some loans from Russia and then trying to uh, get an association agreement with the European Union and hoping to get some kind of favorable economic benefits there. And he made the Ukrainian people, especially the youth, think maybe Ukraine was on the cusp of creating an association agreement with the European Union, which, again, is very much what the young Ukrainians wanted. They've looked at Poland next door, which used to be their poor 
brother, their poor neighbor. And Poland and the Poles are far richer than you than the Ukrainians today. I mean, that's the best way to get people worked up when they see their neighbor doing better. So that's part of it. And then, of course, we said, look, we're not going to interfere and help Russia. I mean, of course, we're going to help the Democrats who want to be democracies. We're going to help Ukraine with reform, reform the corruption, which is at the base of the kleptocracy, and help them become more democratic. So you're serving in the Obama administration when Russia invades Crimea. What does the Obama administration do? Well, it did happen, as you said, very quickly. The Russian military had learned their lessons from that invasion I mentioned earlier in Georgia, because that wasn't flawless from a military perspective. So what we learned when we watched Crimea was, whoa, those guys actually put together a plan. They must have had this planned and they must have rehearsed before they actually executed it because it happened so fast. So we didn't really have a chance to do anything like as it was happening. Right. Um, once they were in Crimea and they had surrounded all the Ukrainian military facilities, as I wrote in an op piece I had in the Washington Post recently, you know, we realized there would be a bloodbath if the Ukrainian military there tried to fight the Russians to try to, you know, keep Crimea for Ukraine. So we realized quickly that Crimea was probably, at least for the near term, gone. Again, the international community, the United States continues to back Ukraine's legitimate, you know, possession of Crimea. But for the time being, we realized, OK, we'd have to just kind of back away from Crimea politically. And then it was all about trying to help the the Ukrainians fight the war that was started by the Russians in the eastern area in, in what's called the Donbass region. And so we provided military assistance, economic assistance. Diplomatically, we spoke out again, as I mentioned, clearly in favor of the Ukrainians. All of this was done to try to deter the Russians from trying to take any more territory from Ukraine. And then again, to help the Ukrainians get economically stronger so that they could also fight the Russians militarily, economically and politically. I want to start following two tracks of this that are braided but are not the same. So there's one dimension of what America begins doing in terms of its policy towards Ukraine to try to help Ukraine arrest further Russian expansion. Then there's another thing happening during this period, before this period, and then in an ongoing way that will end up destabilizing American politics quite consequentially, in which America's relationship with Russia, Vladimir Putin's fury at Barack Obama, is it, it, it's all deteriorating. And so can you talk a bit about that thread, too? How much is America's response to the Crimea invasion at the root of that? How much is it things that happened before? Like, why did the relationship between Putin and Obama and in a different way, Putin and America go down so much from, you know, the, the, the hopes of the Great Reset that launched at the beginning of the administration? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened was when Obama came into office, he was actually dealing with Medvedev as the president. And uh, Putin was the prime minister at the time. He was pretty much still calling most of the shots, but Medvedev was a lot easier to handle. I don't know if you remember, there was what they called the hamburger summit. He came to the U.S. and President Obama took him out to a hamburger joint. Yeah, raise hamburgers. <laughs> in, in Virginia. Exactly. And, you know, they're, they're also around the same age. Medvedev is a lot younger than Putin. And so, and, and again, even I was in a meeting once with President Bush when he was talking to a couple people who he knew would be in the transition um, and potentially in the Obama administration. And he even said that Medvedev was a lot easier to deal with. So then Obama came in with the reset and he achieved a bunch of objectives which he set out for the reset, including maybe one that he didn't set out at the outset but came to fruition, which was getting the Russians to abstain on the the attack basically on Libya to try to prevent Gaddafi from murdering his citizens. And 
if I remember the year correctly, it was like 2010. And so that actually infuriated Putin. And it's all been cumulative because Putin's been watching what's happened in terms of U.S. foreign policy since he came into office. And really since, let's say, 2006 was when he started to get more and more concerned. But you can even date it back to 2003 because he was he opposed Putin, opposed our invasion of Iraq. Um, they had some economic interests they wanted at least addressed before we invaded and we didn't listen to them. So Putin all along has just been really angry at the United States for our foreign policy, which doesn't treat him as an equal, but also equally this foreign policy that he felt supported Democrats and he thought was actually fomenting democratic revolutions. And to this day, he thinks that the Ukrainian people went to the streets because like Hillary Clinton or someone told them to. So he's got a conspiracy theorist mindset about democratic revolution. He doesn't understand it. And so he started to get very angry at Obama because he wasn't being consulted. He wasn't being treated as an equal. These foreign policy decisions were being made. Um, he thought, you know, obviously against the interests of autocrats. He's an autocrat. When Gaddafi came out of the sewage pipe and was brutally murdered by armed Libyans, Putin was alarmed. He saw, wow, that could be me someday, you know, in a, in a, in a bad scenario. Apparently, according to media accounts, he watched that over and over again. So there was a lot of bad blood. Um, fast forward to 2011, when Russia held its parliamentary elections, I'm getting into a little bit of Hillary Clinton in, in a second. They held those parliamentary elections in 2011. They were considered not free and fair by the international community. Hillary Clinton decried them as not free and fair. <laughs> And made a couple other comments that were supposedly off the record, but never mind, Putin found out. So when they were not free and fair and the Russian people went to the streets, but mainly in Moscow, so the elites, and they were mad that they weren't free and fair, Putin blamed it on Secretary Clinton. And of course, she's part of the Obama administration. So just to, to pull out of that, two things are happening here. One is that Putin opposes American foreign policy, which he sees as both adventurist and expansionist. I mean, you know, Iraq obviously wasn't a democratic revolution. That was a, an, an invasion. And so he sees us running around, like knocking pieces off the chessboard, like throwing things into chaos. And at the same time, he sees us as fomenting revolution um, and also fomenting potential revolution uh, against him, right? At a moment of vulnerability for him, Secretary Clinton weighs in on the side of the protesters, argues that his elections are not free and fair. How then does he make the step that appears to happen in which he's not just going to be mad at America, but he's going to begin trying to destabilize American politics? Because that seems to me to be a high risk game. Yes. And that's a big yes. jump. And Ezra, even I understood when I was in the Pentagon, I remember when the Black Lives Matter demonstration started happening, I turned to my deputy and I said to her, OK, this is a legitimate movement with very legitimate grievances. But I bet you a million dollars that there are some Russians in there trying to muck around and use it to their advantage to hype up, obviously, tensions in the U.S. in our society. And of course, it turns out that I was right. But what I did not foresee was that they would actually take on a full-on assault against our elections using everything, social media, stealing information and then releasing it through Wiki, WikiLeaks, all of the various things they did to include also, of course, seeking out contacts with Trump administration folks. It was such an aggressive onslaught, part of it public, part of it private, that I had not anticipated because 
a lot of times there's this whataboutism. Well, the U.S. gets involved in elections. The U.S. does not get directly involved in other people's elections. We might give advice to opposition parties through IRI and NDI, which are these institutes that are U.S. government funded. And they give advice to opposition parties about how to compete, <laughs> you know, for power in elections or or even in free societies, maybe how to get their voices heard. Right. But we don't directly get involved and try to sway the opinion of people in, say, France or Armenia or what have you, you know, whereas the Russians, they were literally, you know, addressing our students through Facebook, through Twitter, you know, through various social media directly. So the Russian effort to sow chaos, arguably to um, elect Donald Trump, depending how consequential you think their work was, bears a lot of fruit in 2016. And so now, like, as Donald Trump um, comes into office— And thereafter. So (laughs) Donald Trump is now president. And how does the Russian effort in Ukraine change or continue or morph? Oh, I mean, they have continued. So actually, Ezra, while they were attacking us, of course, they're continuing to still attack Ukraine. Why? Because Ukraine elected a new president, this guy Petro Poroshenko. Now, he was imperfect. He was a former oligarch, or he was an oligarch still. Even in power, he didn't relinquish his properties, even though he said he would. He said he would relinquish his media properties in particular. But he was a he was more reformist, and he was like a transitional government, I would say, to what they have now, at least hopefully. And the Ukrainians were being attacked constantly also by Russians, you know, again, through social media, fake information. Um, You know, they were assassinating Ukrainians, um, journalists and others. So there was kind of this intimidation slash, again, influence campaign against Ukraine, in addition, obviously, to the war that was still going on in, as I said, that eastern Donbass region. So they were under attack the whole time. The Russians also did some really scary things. They cut off electricity to about a quarter million people at one point in 2015 in Ukraine. So they were testing capabilities that actually they would use if they went against any opponent, whether it's Ukraine or the United States. And we know the Russians are sitting on our energy grids because our intelligence community officials told us that earlier this year. They're sitting on energy grids, water, etc. So not only did they penetrate and try to penetrate election infrastructure, if you will. But they're also literally right now sitting through malicious malware, um, through malware on uh, the some of our infrastructure, ready to take some kind of bad action should the United States really become an opponent. So that's scary. So now I think I want to bring the pieces together, because the reason I've tried to focus us a bit in this conversation on, on Russia, too, is that we keep talking about what is happening in Ukraine as a, as a Ukraine-America question. But it's a Ukraine-America-Russia question that the the leverage Donald Trump had over Ukraine was not just aid in the way we think of aid, but military aid to a country that is currently facing an ongoing invasion, fomenting of uprisings, et cetera, where people are actually dying from Russia. Like, you're not this isn't just like aid that would be nice to have, but America is backing up Ukraine against Russia. And in the absence of American support. Ukraine really could fall to Russia. Right, right, That's exactly. That's a big context um, that I think both is not getting all that well reported, but also just given the role Russia played in the whole Mueller affair, right, that that was all about Russia. I think the fact that this is in many ways a continuation of Russia's role in, in American yes, elections yes. um, just is something that is underappreciated. 
Yes, because you have to wonder who put it in Rudy Giuliani's ear that somehow Ukraine was responsible maybe for 2016, that there was maybe a server somehow, this kind of crazy idea that they cooked up, that there was some server that the that the attack on the U.S. elections actually came from Ukraine, not from Russia, you know, and then again, to to decide to make a big deal about something Hunter Biden did in Ukraine as opposed to in some other country, right? So I think that it is absolutely Absolutely, as you said, an issue of really Russia versus the United States with Ukraine in the middle. And up until recently, what we found out up until this Giuliani business, the United States was firmly on the side of Ukraine. (laughs) But this Giuliani effort was an effort to basically pull the United States indirectly closer to Russia on the issue because we were going to, Giuliani wanted to dirty up not just Biden's reputation, but Ukraine's reputation. And that would leave the United States free to say, oh, the Ukrainians, they're dirty. They attacked us. You know, let's let's drop the sanctions on Russia. And bingo, that's exactly what Putin's been seeking from Trump all along. But this is the the very strange thing about the story. And I'm sorry for people who, after the Mueller report, like wanted an end to <laughs> yeah. like, Russia yeah, well. machinations dis- discussions. But this is a weird enough story that I think it's worth at least considering that there are weird things going on in it. If you read the testimony from Bill Taylor, hear the reporting on Fiona Hill, just like listen to what anybody in the U.S. national security and state establishments were saying – Their whole interest in this was that they believed it was an important part of U.S. foreign policy to back up Ukraine. And it seems that the central thing that happened here, even if you just take the conspiracy theories outside of it, is that Donald Trump did not think it was an important American interest that the U.S. back up Ukraine against Russia. Donald Trump didn't care about backing up Ukraine against Russia. And so military aid to Ukraine was a chip that he was happy to to, to use against Ukraine and to some degree against his own administration as a way to enlist career civil servants in his scheme here. But again, because he didn't care about this thing that for any other U.S. president of any party, I think would have been thought of as an important foreign policy objective that we don't just let um, Russia take over Ukraine. Yeah. And the reason we don't do it, Ezra, is because you have to have a basic understanding of international dynamics, a little bit of knowledge about history, certainly World War I to World War II and beyond, right? Because if we were to say, ah, just let them have Ukraine, right? And some people have argued that. Henry Kissinger has said, make Ukraine a buffer zone, make it neutral, no, no NATO, no nothing, you know? Then we will have said, oh, well, maybe boundaries don't really matter. Do you know who would be next to take a chunk just of Ukraine alone would be Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, who, as you know, lately has been in the media because he's apparently told (laughs) President Trump that Ukraine stinks, for lack of a more succinct way of putting it. You know, he's trying to dirty up Ukraine, too, because he's got a Hungarian minority in Western Ukraine. And the nationalism issue, this issue of the Hungarian minorities who live in countries bordering Hungary, it's essentially territory they lost in World War One, is one that he uses to drum up followers inside Hungary. It's very dangerous to change borders because guess what happens? War. We don't really need a second world, a third, sorry, a third world war. I was going to say a second world war, too. Anyway, um, and that would really be the consequence. The minute you start changing the rules, obviously everyone else is going to say, oh, well, there are no more rules against taking parts of your neighbor's territory if they, if you 
can say that they're your ethnic brethren live there or if you used to own it like back in history, okay, then it's a free for all. I mean, it's not that hard to see how that could happen. And many people are old enough to remember when that happened. Even Donald Trump should have some memory, at least through his father and his grandfather. So it's ridiculous how reckless the president is in in this renegade operation that he unleashed with Giuliani. Well, reckless is one word for it. It's it's hard for me to even know what the right adjective would be to try to get at the motivation here. But the thing that I think is interesting that has really been coming out of the testimony is that when you're trying to understand how Donald Trump had all these people engaged in what really seems like a cockamamie scheme, the calculation the various civil servants were making from people who seem reasonably unimpeachable like Bill Taylor to people who seem a little bit more bizarre like Gordon Sondland was that everybody seemed to be telling themselves outside of the Giuliani-Trump axis that it was worth it to indulge the president's weird scheme with Ukraine because on the other side, if you if you got him what he wanted, um, then he would give Ukraine its military aid and the military aid was really important. And so the leveraging of an important U.S. foreign policy objective as a way to force the bureaucracy to uh, enter into a corrupt scheme for President Trump's reelection, that's a very big part of this and kind of separate even from the the scheme itself, I think a very dangerous way to know that the president is treating um, American policy objectives. Right. I mean, I would say at the macro level, what all of them understood was that Giuliani was impeding a positive U.S.-Ukraine relationship. So leaving aside the military assistance component of it, only because not all of the bureaucrats were aware that the halt in the military assistance was because of Trump's actions, I think. I don't know. We'll we'll find that out. I don't know about Sondland, but I, I certainly the ones that I know. So Volcker and Hill and, you know, Kurt Volcker, Fiona Hill, Bill Taylor, uh, George Kent, all these folks, they all wanted a better U.S.-Ukrainian relationship, right? I don't know what they rationalized, but clearly they thought they could safely indulge the president and come out on the other side without harming Ukraine. Or the United States. It seems to me also their thinking was the opposite, that if they didn't indulge the president, they would harm Ukraine. And that is a very interesting and scary idea. But you may well be right um, that the president, if he was not indulged, would take worse actions vis-a-vis Ukraine that, that right now, even to this day in public, he's saying, of course, we support Ukraine. And, you know, he's making nice with Zelensky, although he's saying very unconstructive things like, why don't you guys just get along, you know, work out your problem as if the U.S. has no stake in whether Russia controls Ukraine or not, which is exactly wrong. You know, we are we didn't we we should not be hands off. We should help Ukraine, you know, stand alone and be independent and forge its own destiny. We should not be aiding the Kremlin by doing nothing. But isn't this weird? I mean, I, I just when I kind of it took me some time to even appreciate it, but we had gone through the whole Russia and Mueller thing. And now to f- like really recognize that the Ukraine case is also a Russia case. Yeah, but it's because, Ezra, nobody did a 9-11 commission report. The Mueller report is like completely 
I bet you a million dollars there's so much missing. That's why we can't see those grand jury files yet. That's why, of course, there are legitimate reasons for us not to see the counterintelligence reports. But there's so much more. The reason Bill Taylor's testimony, I think, was so compelling to people was he just said, I'm going to put everything I know out there. I'm not going to just respond to the questions I get asked by the committee. Because basically what the Mueller report was like, well, it's like what we got from the when we asked questions of like hostile witnesses. OK, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. And I now know this because they actually interviewed me on the when the Republicans held the Congress. Um, the Intel Committee interviewed me because you remember there was that Farkas fracas and they said I was like leaking and wiretapping with Obama or whatever. And so they when they interview you, the lawyers teach you to just answer the questions. Don't volunteer anything else. And I think what's different about Bill Taylor is that he went in and said, I'm not going to take that approach. I'm going to give them the whole story. Right. Because he was a friendly witness. All the other witnesses were hostile witnesses. So they're like, I'm just going to answer that question. You know, like Sondland, I don't know what the president was thinking, you know. But meanwhile, like, I'm sure there's a lot of other things that he knows that he wasn't volunteering. But that was what was so interesting about his testimony to me and the story he ended up telling in it, which is that there was this split personality in American foreign policymaking where there's this like foreign policy establishment that is trying to execute America's traditional foreign policy towards Ukraine to stop Russia from executing an invasion. And then this other foreign policy, which is on behalf of Donald Trump's reelection campaign, or if you're being it's more generous, even foreign even, policy. Yeah. Well, it is what it is. But if you're being more generous, maybe on behalf of his weird idiosyncratic obsessions. But then these two things are are substituting for each other. And just the thing that I kept thinking was so underplayed in it is the, the total lack of interest Donald Trump himself had in American foreign policy objectives. Yes, you're totally right. And the other thing is I wouldn't even call what Donald Trump did like a foreign policy something. It's a water Watergate break in like he was doing a Watergate break in. It just was all the way over in Ukraine. I want to end on um, one question about the stakes here, which is I think most of us following the impeachment saga think of it as a domestic politics story. And when we talk about the stakes, I mean, I gave a like a riff and in, in, on the show last week, we think about it as what is the message it's going to be sent to American politicians if this behavior goes unpunished, right? What will it say about what you can and can't do in American elections? But from this conversation, it also sounds like it's a it's a geopolitics story that part of the question is if Putin is able to get away with all this, if the if the end result for him is that he got more latitude on Ukraine and he managed to completely foul up American elections and politics for years and years and years um, and not, like nothing ever comes of it, that at least part of the question here is what kind of statement Republicans and Democrats in Congress are going to make about America's geopolitical posture towards allies like Ukraine, not just about what American politicians can do in terms of their electoral prospects. Yeah, I mean, it will obviously be a real weak moment for our democracy. I mean, if we if we don't make sure that justice is done in the case of the crimes that were committed, clearly in this latest instance with regard to Ukraine, but also the earlier crimes that were committed in connection with the initial Russian intervention into U.S. elections, then we will have weakened U.S. democracy because 
it's only as strong as the enforcement of the laws that we have. And so that's important. The second thing is that's the sa- it's the same internationally. If we don't enforce the principle of inviolability of borders, meaning you can't attack and change borders militarily, then we will have weakened the rule about that right? And then other countries will be tempted to test. So in both cases, we really need to have better enforcement. The U.S. used to enforce rules about international boundaries. We need to do it more forcefully with our allies on the international stage. And domestically, we need to better enforce the rules around our democracy. Evelyn Farkas, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. There's a bargain the Republican Party made with Donald Trump. And the bargain went something like this. He may not have been the candidate they wanted. He may not have been the candidate they preferred. But as long as he would govern like a Republican, as long as he would sign their tax cut bills and nominate their judges, it was worth overlooking the other stuff. It was worth not worrying about the tweets and the weird press conferences and rallies. You know, don't 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 pay attention to the drama. Just pay attention to the substance. And it's really important in this story to recognize that Donald Trump has betrayed that pact, that it is a longtime Republican Party objective to not permit Russia to do this. It is a longtime overriding Republican Party objective to ensure that the post-Cold War regime in which Russia is not allowed to be an expansionary power maintains. This has been a week when we have watched Republicans fall back to a more difficult position. We know that some of them, like Mitt Romney and in a different way, Senator John Thune, have expressed some real discomfort with what Donald Trump has done. Mitt Romney has been stronger than most, but we know from the reporting that others are becoming more disturbed. But something that they need to think about as we watch Lindsey Graham put forward resolutions condemning the Democratic impeachment process, as we watch Matt Gates lead House Republicans in a flash mob, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put it, against the House Democratic impeachment process, is that this is not just an American political drama anymore. This is a question of American foreign policy. And the, the, the question that it poses is whether or not you can betray the longstanding principles and objectives of American foreign policy so long as the country you are betraying it on behalf of helps you get reelected. So there is one version of this that has been playing out with Ukraine, another version of it that has been playing out with Russia. With Russia, it seemed to be more of a collaboration. Uh, We do not know still, and I think this raises yet more questions about how close, but with Russia, there appears to have been more of an understanding that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump don't mind each other in the way that they mind other foreign leaders. And so Donald Trump is willing to accept Russian help and be less concerned with Russian objectives. And Vladimir Putin is willing to help out Donald Trump so long as Donald Trump overlooks certain things that Russia is doing uh, and appears to be better for Russian interests in the world than virtually any other imaginable U.S. president would be. In Ukraine, the question was driven more by an extortion. Uh, There was not a matching of interests, but a demand for a quid pro quo. There's more of a leveraging of Ukrainian weakness on behalf of an American president who just simply didn't care about the substance of what the country was undergoing and was not concerned by what would happen if American military aid stopped and Russia continued its expansionary march. A big picture reality here is that an out-of-control executive, an executive who is abusing power or betraying the public interest or acting in a way that is unacceptable— is not something that the founding fathers, that the American system of government failed to account for. 
fact, they were very concerned with the possibility of monarchs. They were operating within a context in which executive overreach was not just possible, but it was the norm. The great question of the American experiment was, could you construct a system that would not be run for the benefit and according to the whims of one man? What the founding fathers, what the Constitution did not account for was Mitch McConnell, was Matt Gates, was Kevin McCarthy, was political parties. We were supposed to have the ambition of different branches of government checking the ambition of others. Congress was supposed to be the unit of action against the president, which was another unit of government. Instead, what we have are parties that cooperate across branches. It is the fundamental change in our constitutional system and one the Constitution has almost nothing to say about. My point here is simply this. We know how to handle a problem like Donald Trump. What we don't quite know is how to handle a problem like Donald Trump's protectors. What we don't quite know is how to handle the problem of what if he did everything we're worried that he did, but because we have political parties now, there's nothing that can be done about it within the constitutional system. The American constitutional system has a way for handling a president like Donald Trump. That way is impeachment. It is written down in the Constitution. What it does not have is a way for handling a situation in which one party will protect a president from accountability or impeachment under any circumstances because their political fortunes, their professional fortunes, their personal fortunes are bound up in his success. And that's something that should be more concerning. It is a genius of our system that the way impeachment is designed, you do not lose the political party you had. It is not the case that if Donald Trump were to be impeached, Nancy Pelosi would become president. The Democrats would take over. It is a case that Mike Pence would become president. That is supposed to, on some level, allow for a continuation of factional prerogatives. It should, on some level, allow a political party to hold their own president accountable. The fact that it is not is a grand question of why our system does not appear to work better, even given rules that seem, given what they did not expect, quite farsighted. Which is all to say that the most interesting actor in this drama is not Donald Trump. He is predicted. It's Mitch McConnell. Because Mitch McConnell is what was not predicted. Mitch McConnell and his willingness to quietly, consistently, ruthlessly protect Trump at all costs. That's a real different question. When he said, as he did a week or two ago, you all know how the Constitution works. The way impeachment stops is with me as majority leader. That is not how the Constitution works. That is how the Constitution breaks. When he says that, what he's saying is that there is a loophole. There is something that was not predicted here. And that is that we would not have ambition checking ambition. What we would have is ambition protecting ambition. I'm Ezra Klein. This is Impeachment Explained. That is our show. Thank you for listening. Um, if you missed last week's episode on high crimes and misdemeanors, I think you'll enjoy it. Go check it out. Uh, please, if you're enjoying this show, uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps tremendously, much more than makes any sense for it to do so, but it only takes a minute or send it to a friend. Uh, if you have questions you would like us to address on the show, um, something that you think would be a good topic for a show about impeachment that confuses you, concerns you, you can send it to me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Impeachment Explained is engineered by Malachi Brodus and Chris Shirtleff. Our theme music is composed by John Natchez. It is researched by Roger Karma, produced and edited by Jeff Geld. Thank you to our executive producer, Liz Nelson. And I am your host, Ezra Klein. 
We are, as always, a Vox Media podcast production.